Good morning, church. If you want God to make his glory known through his words of life, then open your Bible to its first page as we study his word and his testimony about day one. We'll be looking at Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 in our time this morning. We'll begin just reading in verse 1 of of Genesis chapter 1. So again, if you grab the, the Bible in front of you, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can grab one under the chair in front of you and open up. Uh, we're on the very first page of that Bible. Let's read God's word together. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness the, excuse me, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And we'll just read verses 3 through 5 one more time. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are light, and in you there is no darkness at all. And it's in your light that we see light. You are the giver of all light. We adore you, Lord, and we worship you this morning. Father, you give light to illumine a dark world, and you give light to illumine dark minds. You give light to fill our hearts with hope in life. May you cause our hearts, Lord, this morning to rejoice in you as we consider your word and the testimony that you have borne through your servant Moses to teach us Lord, who would otherwise be in total darkness about this first week of creation, apart from the testimony that you bear here through him. So, Lord, may we be in awe and find in these verses ample cause to praise you. Lord, may we praise you for your power. May we marvel as we behold your wisdom. May we delight, O Lord, in your goodness. And we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would make us a people who better understand and live in light of the first day of creation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to invite you all to take a journey with me back in time, all the way to the first day. All the way back to day one. 
The first part of the first day, we see that God created the heavens and the earth. And if you were there to look around, you wouldn't see anything. (laughs) Why? Because darkness covered the face of the deep. If you were to put you on a little boat, even though God hadn't created man yet, but if we were to put you on a little boat, you would be on this boat, resting on waters, in total and complete darkness, looking around, unable to see anything, because there is no light. You may be able to reach your hand out of your boat and feel the waters, but it would be hard for you to see anything else, because you are on a boat, on top of waters, and there is no land, and there is no light, and there are no stars in the sky, there's no sun, there's no moon, there's no living things, just waters in darkness. God created the world in darkness. Hear this closely. But he never intended darkness to be its final state, nor its perpetual state. Rather, God being so powerful, so wise, so good, he did not intend to leave the earth in a state of darkness, but would demonstrate his power and wisdom and goodness by causing there to be light. Verse 3 says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So to demonstrate his power, he spoke light into existence. To demonstrate his, his wisdom, on the first day, he created a day and the conditions for enjoying a day. And to demonstrate his goodness, he assessed the light and said that it was good. We only have three verses here, but I think they are absolutely marvelous to consider together. And as we do so, I want to encourage us to think about a simple theme that might otherwise escape us. And that is the theme of after darkness, light. Or how I titled the sermon, after darkness, light. And I think we see it in two places in this text. First in the transition of verse 2 from the the dark world to then verse 3, the light shining. But we also see it mentioned again in that there was evening and there was morning. Evening being that time where you transition to darkness and morning that time when you transition to the light. So in two just kind of simple ways we can see this theme of after darkness, light present right here in our passage. And I think as we go through the sermon, we think about different things, we'll find that this is a a pattern for God. And it's a pattern that should fill us with hope. Because when we consider the world, we consider what God has done for us, we consider the things that he's promised, we have a great hope. Our story is that. It's after darkness, light. That's the story of creation. That's the story of us being saved. That's the story of where this whole thing is headed. After darkness, light. And so however dark life may get for you, however hard it may seem, however difficult and whatever uh, darkness you experience now in life, you know there is light at the end of the tunnel. After darkness, light. And God is the author of that light. 
He is the one who made it, and he should be praised for he 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 should be praised for bringing it into existence. We see uh, an early Jewish prayer mentioned in the synagogue in the mornings. It uh, it goes like this: "Blessed be thou, Lord or God of the universe, who formest the light and createst darkness, who makest peace and createst everything." who in thy mercy givest light to the earth and to its inhabitants. There's something you could pray in the morning. There's something you could thank God for. When's the last time you thanked God for light? When's the last time you thanked God for a day? When's the last time you thanked God for the daytime? May these things cause us to praise him. And that's really the main idea of Genesis 1, 3 through 5. It's that I think we can see three glorious attribute, attributes of God on display in his gift of light on day one so that we will be forever in awe of him and worship him. Once again, we see three glorious attributes of God on display in his gift of light on day one so that we will be forever in awe of him and worship him. So let's begin with the first glorious attribute of God on display in his gift of light. That is his attribute of power. The first glorious attribute of God on display is the power of God. And really four verbs boast of the power of God in this passage. And, and I'll just say here that there's lots of things that we're going to get into and that we're going to talk about as we work through Genesis chapter 1, not only in my sermon, but in other sermons. But guys, we do not want to miss the most glaringly, obviously, and, uh, glaringly and most obvious truths that are just shouting off of the pages. And one of those is the power of God. Where do we see the power of God? We see it in four actions that he makes in these verses. We see that he speaks. We see that he sees. We see that he separates, and we see that he names. And all of these are verbs which God is the subject, and he is the one performing the action of. And what does this teach us? It teaches us that God is powerful. He is at work. He is alive. He was there before anything else was there, and he was there with the power to do whatever he wills all the way from the beginning. He speaks. We see this in verse 3 when it says that, And God said, Let there be light. And that's all it takes. All God had to do was speak it. All God had to do was to express his volition and his will. And then instantaneously, what does it say? Right after that, and there was light. That's the power of God. Oh, how I wish I could do that in my home. Right? Let this home be clean. That would save me some time. That would be an incredible power to have. You guys wish you had that power too, right? Uh, or, even, uh, or even trying to find the light switch in the night, and you're like, where is that thing, right? If you could just walk in and be like, let there be light, right? That would be an amazing thing. But you and I do not have this power, but God does. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And so when he speaks, he speaks things right into existence. Uh, Pastor Kevin Bryan's fond of saying God doesn't try, 
right? He, God didn't try to get the light to come out of wherever it was hiding. No, God spoke into existence. That's his power. And this is the clear testimony of the scripture. God is a God who speaks things into existence out of nothing. In other words, ex nihilo, for out of nothing. That's what God does. That's what he can do. Psalm 33 verse 9 says that he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Second Peter 3 verse 5 says that they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 says that by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So God speaks and things come into existence. We have to also consider, I think, in light of what John says in his prologue, that this is, when, when it speaks of God creating by his word, that, that not only are we to take that as un, uh, teaching us the, the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, but also the, uh, very possibly the involvement of the Son who is the word of God. John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and it tells us that all things were made through him, his word. And a number of interpreters throughout history have suggested that when God speaks here, even in Genesis 1, the one doing the speaking is the word. In other words, it's likely that creation is happening here from the Father through the Son. So when God shows his power, there's no no better way to show his power in creation than just speaking it. Shows his power, shows the power of his son. It shows the power of his spirit. He does not depend on anything else. He does not need anything else. He does not have to borrow anything from anyone. Uh, He does not have to use anything in order to achieve it. And so he's here and we see his power. So God speaks. We also see that God sees. It says that God saw that the light was good. So this light that, that then began to shine on the earth was a light that was, was visible and God uh, gave his approval of it. Uh, so God is not a, a blind God. He's not a God who's unaware. He's not a God who cannot see. And he's not a God who cannot see the needs that, that are there and then meet those needs and provide those needs. There's a close relationship in the scriptures between the one who sees and the one who provides. God is the God who sees. And also, he's the God who separates in verse 4. He separated the light from the darkness. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we keep going. But then, finally, God also names. It says that he called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And so, because God was the one that spoke this light into existence, and then with that light, could be able to differentiate between light and darkness on the earth. There is a part of the time on the earth where it's light, which God calls day, which we might refer to as daytime, and then there's a part he called night, which we may refer to as the nighttime, where it's dark out. God names all of these things, and so by giving light, there became two parts of the day, and the part part of the day where there's light, which we call day, the part of the day that is dark, which we call night, and God names them both, and God expresses 
his authority over both in naming them. And so this reveals the, the power and authority of God. Nothing can compare with his power. So do you see his power in this text? There's no one like him setting it all up, setting up the earth to be a wonderful place, not just friendly, but, but enabling flourishing of living creatures and human beings. He gets it all prepared first with light. This leads to the second glorious attribute of God on display in his gift of light on day one, and that is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. The wisdom of God displayed in the gift of light on day one should compel us to be forever in awe and to worship him. There shouldn't be a single day that is able to pass us by without us praising him for it. I think that this is a, a, a most easy thing to overlook and take for granted what's meant, what God is doing in these verses. To us, it's just normal. Another day. To us, it's just normal. Another morning. Another evening. We've grown accustomed to that because it's happened every day of our life. But if, if I was just thinking about this, but it, you know, if, if, if you or me were to be the, the creator in the beginning, what would you do on the first day? Like, I, I was thinking about that, and I'm like, oh, I'd start making, like, cool big stuff, right? Like, uh, I'll, I'll make some crazy creature, you know, uh, and, and be like, boom, look at that. That's awesome. God makes, causes light to come into existence so that he could create a day so that, that, that you could have regularity and order and, and that you could, you could be able to even understand what he means when he tells you that it was one day. You would have no context for that if not explained to you on the first day. And how could he even call it one day without explaining a day? And so he does exactly that because he gives light to shine on the earth and that light then creates two distinct parts of the day, the daytime and the nighttime. The daytime when it transitions to nighttime is the evening and then that, that, uh, that, that nighttime when it transitions uh, to light again is the morning. There was evening and there was morning one day. This is the wisdom of God. You and I would have been, you know, making some big, crazy-looking animals or beasts. God knows better than us. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set this up so that you know what I'm talking about, so that it's set up perfectly for you, so that, so that a morning and an evening and a day can be intelligible to you. And I'm going to do that by the way all without the sun. Because as you read through here, you see in verse 14 that on day four, the sun is created. On day four, it says that he made the, the, the greater lights. And those are the sun and the moon, and on that day, also the stars. And so this light that God gives on day one that creates the two parts of a day that make a day intelligible, that make an evening intelligible, that make a morning intelligible to us, God does all that without the sun. 
so that a day truly relies on the Lord alone. You may think, why is that? that? I think that's crazy cool. And then the fact that he makes it, he puts the sun on, on day four forever shuts the mouth of anyone who would want to worship the sun. Why? The sun's dispensable. The world's going just fine without it for three days. This is the wisdom of God. You see, if you or I were making this story, we would have begin with some light and we'd be like, yeah, the sun. God says, no, that'll come later. This is the wisdom of God. Some people say that, you know, you can't have a normal day without a sun. And so the first three days of Genesis might not be a literal 24-hour days because sun, moon, and stars are not created until day four. But in response to this, I think we can ask, why not? Does God need a watch to keep track of time? Does God need sun to make light? Did God need a bush to burn up, to appear in blazing fire to Moses? To Moses? Did God struggle to manifest his presence with glory as a pillar of fire in the wilderness? Church, all you need for a normal day is a light source that can produce light on the earth and either a rotating earth or a rotating sun so that there is daytime and nighttime, evening and morning. That's all it takes. And that's what we have described for us in this passage. I love that God created and defined a day on the first day and that we have successive days of creation uh, all before the sun. I think this shows his power and wisdom. And since we've already bled into this topic a little bit already, it's helpful for us to then take a step back and answer the question of how do we know that the day mentioned in verse 5, when it says that there was evening and morning one day, is a normal 24-hour day as opposed to maybe just a period of time. There's a popular theory that's held by many brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe some of you hold to this. Uh, It's called the day-age theory. And the idea of this theory is that each day uh, that is mentioned in, in, in Genesis 1 can be understood as an age or a long period of time rather than a 24-hour day. Thus, the days mentioned could really be, uh, you know, when it says uh, one day and the second day uh, and a second day and a third day, uh, that it could be just really long periods of time, such as millions or, or billions of years. And there's no doubt that a, the Hebrew word for day can mean a period of time longer than, than 24 hours. We see it used that way in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. It says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no, uh, uh, no man to work the ground. Excuse me, verse 4. Apologize for that. Uh, These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. And so in the day there is referring to a period of time that is longer than 24 hours. But that time's already been defined for us because of the six days that are marched through in chapter one. 
And so it's true. Hebrew, uh, the word for day, which is yom, can refer to a period of time that's longer than 24 hours. Uh, but the most prevalent use of yom or day is in reference to a period that refers to 24 hours. Uh, and then also, uh, the, word for, the Hebrew word for day can be used and is even used this way in Genesis 1 as speaking about just the, the half of a day or the daytime or the light, which we've already talked about a little bit. And in fact, in verse 5, right, we see that uh, the word day is used in two different senses in one, senses in one verse. It says, God called the light day. And so there, that's referring to the daytime period of the earth. Uh, uh, of, the, of the light on the earth, and then the darkness he called night. How do we know that that's not a 24-hour period? How do we know that that's not just some, you know, uh, unknown amount of time over 24 hours? Well, it's because the light is there for only half the day. There's darkness and there's night. But then you go, keep going. It says there is evening and there was morning the first day. And in, that, and in that sense, we have to ask the question, when it says one day or the first day, how do we know if this is speaking about a period that could just be, you know, way more, just as an age or way more than 24 hours? How could, or how do we know uh, whether it's a literal 24-hour day or if it's a 12-hour day? And the fact that you have evening and morning there would, uh, and the night and day mentioned before would, would seem to indicate very clearly that this is a 24-hour day. And so we see two senses there. Um, and uh, one of the things to, I think, to, to, to mention here uh, is that, let me just put it this way, H however you take this, please be humble about it. Please be, be loving about it. Please be a Berean, search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Study these things. Delight yourself in these things. Have some debate with others who disagree with you on this, but ultimately seek in humility to speak the truth in love and be submitted to the clear text of scripture. And I think that when we try to do that, where we end up with on these days in Genesis 1, and specifically in the one uh, in verse 5 of our passage, there's evening and there's morning one day, is that it is a normal 24-hour day. And context is what makes this clear. Context is what makes this clear for us. The only way to distinguish a 24-hour day from a 12-hour day, from a, a, you know, back in my father's day, is the context. And so, uh, Many different commentators point out that when the singular word day is used uh, with a number, it indicates a 24-hour period. So the fact that we have one day and this, a second day and a third day, these are all indicating a 24-hour period. Second, when the word day is used with a numbered series, it indicates a 24-hour period. And that's what we have as each of these days continues to number forward. Uh, third, when the word day is used with night, it always denotes a 24-hour day. Four, did I say fourth or third there? <laughs> that was third. Fourth, when, the, when day is used with morning or evening, it is used with, uh, it, it is, uh, when the word morning or evening is used with day, it refers to a literal 24-hour day. And when the pair, morning and evening, together are used with day, it always signifies a 24-hour day. 
If you're interested in reading more on, on some of those arguments, you can check out Days of Creation, a semantic approach uh, by James Stamba. Uh, I'm not sure if I pronounced his last name right, uh, but you can, you can check that out. But one of the things that I think is so amazing about this is that's five textual indicators that are given there and that is consistent in other places in Scripture that, that it's always referring to a 24-hour day. And guess how many of those indicators we have in our text just one of them, just one of them would be sufficient to be able to decide for us, what does he mean by day? Just one. We have five. And guess what? All five are here in the text. All five. And if that weren't enough, I think uh, two passages in Exodus entirely sealed the deal for me, at least. And I hope they do for you. So turn to Exodus. I want you to at least write down these two verses. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, and Exodus 31, verse 17. And you, if you're familiar with Exodus 20, you'll know that this is, uh, Exodus 20 is where the Ten Commandments uh, show up. Uh, also, if you're familiar with Exodus, you'll know that uh, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, that it's the second book of the Pentateuch, or the Torah, or the first five books of Moses, uh, which, uh, uh, we, so we're seeing here in Exodus uh, the same author, Moses, and, and not only the same author uh, uh, as Genesis, but then also, uh, specifically, this is in, in the section on the Ten Commandments, and is the direct speech of God, saying, what Israel's to do. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11 says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourners within your gates. Verse 11, four Keyword four, in six days, the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Notice the reference for four in six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth uh, is the ground or the reason for Israel to work six days and then rest one. Why? Because that's what God did. In creation. And so uh, I think that you, you can't escape a literal understanding of those days. Exodus 31, 17 repeats it. It says also in, uh, in it says in verse, verse 16, and I'll start from verse 16, Exodus 31. We read 16 and 17. It says, Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And, and this raises a, a sixth indicator for us because this is essentially like summary commentary helping us realize that, yeah, we are actually reading those first six days correctly and that's provided for us. And a sixth indicator of that is the fact that when you have, uh, when you have the plural word days combined with a number, 
it's always referring to those, that specific duration of time. That in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth. It is referring to real, literal, normal days. There were six of them. And then on a seventh one, which was also one, he rested. And so all this to say, I think that because we have uh, all those five indicators, also a sixth, sixth indicator from the Exodus and uh, passages, um, we, we understand that the day spoken of when it says there's evening and there is morning, one day is a normal 24-hour period of time. That's day-age theory. And any other theory that does not take the days of creation as 24-hour normal days uh, does not hold up under scrutiny, in my opinion. And I encourage you that if you think otherwise, then, then show that these indicators are not true or that there's some, you know, something messed up in here that, uh, that has been presented. I'd be glad to hear it. Uh, I'd be willing to, to, to hear it and, and adjust any of the stuff that I've presented um, if that's the case. But let's engage with this and think about this in dialogue about this together in love and charity. So in my opinion, the days of creation are then not thousands of years. They're not millions of years. They're not billions of years. God has been pleased to reveal that he did his work of creation in the span of six literal and historical 24-hour days with a real daytime and a real nighttime and a real evening and a real morning and, and a real ordered consecutive series and then rested on a real seventh day. And all this shows his power and his wisdom. So worship him and be in awe of him. Praise him for it. The gift of a day is a beautiful gift. And so we've seen the power of God on display. We've seen the wisdom of God on display. And we move now to our last point and take a look at the goodness of God on display in the first day of creation. The goodness of God. If we are going to be in awe of God, and to praise him. We should praise him for his goodness that is seen on the first day. And we'll consider this in light of his gift, his pronouncement, his glory. I put a question mark there. And his invitation. And so first, the goodness of God seen in his gift is that God gives this. He gives light after darkness. And he thereby sets up daytime and nighttime and morning and evening and all of these things and makes a day intelligible to us and allows there uh, to be a way for us to uh, experience the, the regularity of, 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 of a normal day. And it's, and it's a wonderful gift. The light produces that, makes that possible. And the light, he says, is good. For God to give such a good gift he must be good. He is a good gift giver. He is the father of lights. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. And so we should thank him and praise him for this light of day one. But now this questioning has been lingering a bit, and I purposely avoided it till the end. But there's a burning question of what is this light? We know that it's a gift. We know that it's pronounced good. We know that it made daytime possible, evening and morning possible, a normal 24-hour day possible. But what exactly is it? I think this is the riddle of Genesis 1. Because you're going through and you're reading, you hear about the light, and, and you keep reading, and then you hear about three days later, son. 
Huh? And most people, when they read about God said, let there be light, they just already think sun. But then sun's specifically mentioned on four is being made. So what is this light? So there's three kind of options that people give here. One is that some people say that, well, the light on day one is the sun. But the sun was like covered by some clouds. And then so on day four, even though the sun already existed, God then revealed the sun on day four. And then the sun shone on the, on the earth. That's what day age theorists hold to. Uh, but I don't think any of that is mentioned at all in the Genesis account. Um, and I don't think that the sun was just revealed on day four. In verse 15, it says he made the two great lights, and that there was evening uh, and there was morning the fourth day. And so I don't think that sun is a possibility here. Uh, other people uh, say that it's obviously not the sun since the sun was not created until day four, so it's probably some natural light that God set up whose role is taken up by the sun, moon, and stars on day four, and I'd say that's certainly possible. It's certainly possible. Other people say, that it was not the sun, nor a natural light that God set up, but rather a supernatural light that he set up. In other words, the light was a divine manifestation of his own glory, and thus his own glory made possible the light, daytime, evening, and morning, in short, a normal day. And for the first three days of creation, he saw fit to have, uh, 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 and, and for the first three days of creation, he saw fit for all of that to rely on him and his glory. And then in his wisdom, created the sun to then serve in the same way on day four going forward. So which of these uh, should, we, should we take? I think we should throw out number one. Just, just crumple it up and throw it in the trash. Number two is, is definitely possible. Number three, uh, uh, I think, is, is, is the one that I would like to, uh, to land on and, and, and think about for a few moments with you. Are there any good reasons to think that this is a supernatural light or God's glory radiating over the earth? Turn to Psalm 104. We'll read verse 1 and 2 together. Psalm 104 verses 1 and 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Oh, Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Verse 2, covering yourself with light as with a garment. Stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. Let's, uh, let's focus here on, on verses 1 and 2. And notice he says that you are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. And then the next thing he says is stretching out the heavens like a tent. So this is following the same order of Genesis 1. Uh, as Pastor Kevin will, will, will talk about um, next, next, next week, we're going to see the, the, the heavens stretched out like a tent. <laughs> that happens on day two, verse six says, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters 
and let it separate the waters from waters. And God made the expanse. And, he, and then jumping to verse 8, it says, And God called the expanse heaven. And there's evening and morning, a second day. And so the psalmist is following the same exact order, uh, light coming into existence, and then heaven stretched out. How does he understand the light? Covering yourself with light as with a garment. I think that's pretty cool. I think uh, in the Chris Tomlin song, he says he wraps himself in light. And darkness tries to hide. It trembles out his voice. What's the voice of God say there? What is, it, what is he talking about? Let there be light. That's why darkness is trembling at his voice. And that light, according to Psalm 104, verse 2, is light that God covered himself with as with a garment. I think that's insane. I love it. And there's more, though. We could, we could look at all sorts of different passages. We could consider the, the pillar of fire. We could consider the Shekinah glory. We could consider when, when Moses is speaking with God in his glory that Moses' face is, is because he beheld the glory of the Lord. That Moses' own face is shining and brightening us to, you know, wear a veil. But we could go and we could look at other passages. We could look at Daniel 2, 22, Zechariah 14, 7, Isaiah 60, Joel 3, 3, Isaiah 24, 23, all of which have been used to connect the theme of light and the glory of God shining with the, the arrival of the Messiah. For example, Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, for the glory of the Lord has arisen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. The sun shall be no more uh, your light by day, nor, the brightness shall, uh, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. The Lord will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting life and the Days of your mourning shall be ended. Who's the light there? The Lord. And the arrival of the Lord is speaking of the arrival of his Messiah. When we come to the New Testament, we encounter the prologue of the Apostle John, who writes that in the beginning was the word, speaking of Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, uh, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and says that all things were made through him. So however you understand Genesis 1, like the sun was there for sure, according to John. And nothing came into existence apart from the sun. And so everything that John mentions in his prologue up to that point has to do with creation and the role of the sun in creation. And he goes on and he says that the light shines, or excuse me, he goes on and says of the word that in him was life and that life was the light of men. And so I think that it is not a stretch to consider here that John may be viewing the word of God, Jesus, as the source of light in Genesis 1. The testimony of Jesus himself is, I am the light of the world. Whoever follow me, follows me will not walk in darkness. 
Moreover, we see at the transfiguration, Jesus brings his, his disciples up to a mountain and it says that Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. This is a glimpse of the glory of the sun. Acts chapter 26, Apostle Paul gives his testimony. Paul, who is persecuting Christians on his way to persecute more Christians, not a believer in Jesus yet, has an encounter with the risen and exalted Lord Jesus who appears appears to him in glory. And this is what it says. Paul testifies, In this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority of the commission of the chief priests at midday. That's like when the sun's at its brightest, right? At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. I love that. What sun? (laughs) This sun. Brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And the point of all this was to call Paul uh, to, to, to go and to turn uh, from darkness to light and from the power of God to Satan and to receive the forgiveness of sins. That's what that light would lead to for Paul. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 that the God who said light, who said, light shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And to, I think, top all that off, Revelation 21 Verse 23 in Revelation 22, 3 through 5. First, Revelation 21, verse 23, uh, 22 and 23. This is when, when John sees the new heaven and new earth. It says that I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Revelation 22, the very end of the, the, the future hope described in the new heaven and the new earth, verses 3 through 5 says that no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will no, have no need, excuse me, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And so if what Revelation is, is describing here is true, and if, if, if Genesis uh, 1 verse 3, if that light is the light of God's glory, then the Bible begins and ends with the glory of God. It's supernatural. There's nothing like it. Glory radiating with full brilliance from the face of the sun by the power of the Spirit. Incredible. One of the things that I've begun doing some reading on is... uh, 
what's called the Targums, which are Aramaic paraphrases of the Old Testament, that, that they're hard to date, but it, it seems uh, likely that they were, uh, they were uh, um, in existence and the theology that's contained in them was, 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 was somewhat common for the first century and thus could be the background, uh, offer as a helpful background to consider uh, the word of God uh, and this theology of the, the, the Lagos and uh, in, in, in John's prologue. Uh, and one of the things I found amazing, this is, this is a quote for, I'm going to give you a quote. Uh, this is from Targum Neophyti. So these are not Christians. Uh, these are Jews, possibly this tradition going back to at least the first century, first couple centuries um, uh, A.D. Uh, and this is what it reads on Exodus 12.42. It contains a, a mention of four nights. Exodus 12.42 speaks about the night of the Passover. And so uh, as this Aramaic translation from the Old Testament is going, as mentioned the Passover, it kind of moves into a paraphrase to explain with like a poem uh, these four significant nights. And so this is the, the poem of four nights. And this is what it says. Four nights are written in the book of memories. The first night when the Lord was revealed above the earth to create it. The earth was void and empty and darkness was spread over the face of the abyss. And the word, or in Aramaic, memra of the Lord was the light and it shone. And he called it the first night. So these four nights are first uh, when uh, the first night of creation. The second night is the, this night when God appeared to Abraham, promised that his descendants would be numerous as the stars of heaven. The third night is the Passover night in Egypt. And the fourth night in the song is when the Messiah will arrive. These for them were the four most important nights in all of human history. And what do they say about the first night? I find it fascinating. They say the first night the Lord was revealed above the earth to create it. The memra, or the word of the Lord, was the light, and it shone, and he called it the first night. Pretty amazing. So then you realize John's prologue and what John's saying in Revelation and all that, is, it it's, has a common, common background informed by a theological, exegetical reading of the Old Testament. I still leave this in your notes as glory question mark. You can disagree with me if I haven't convinced you. Uh, but I think a good case has been, been made for that. All of this shows the, the goodness of God. And I think with the goodness of God, we, we should close here with an invitation to experience that goodness. The power of God, the wisdom of God, the goodness of God, individually and each of them together, revealed on this first day of creation, should cause us to be in awe of him and to worship him. And we are invited to seek this light. We are invited to come to this light. We are invited to live and walk in this light, to see his face, to experience his salvation to know the forgiveness of sins, to become children of the light, and to then walk in the, the light. To, to, to have our stories line up with the theme of this text and in many other places of after darkness light. We saw after darkness light and the mention of the, the light shining into the darkness in Genesis 1. We see it in the evening and morning in verse 5. 
also shows us after darkness light. And the awaiting for the arrival of the Messiah, the scriptures speak of the time before his arrival as darkness, the time after his arrival as light. Even experientially, when the blind man met Jesus, his story was darkness, right? <laughs> after darkness, light. He didn't see, Jesus made him see, and that became his, his story as well. Uh, we know that the darkness of the Messiah's death in the tomb gave way to the light of his glory and his resurrection and his ascension to the throne of God. That also is after darkness, light. And the, the waiting for the arrival of the Messiah to come again, which is the message of the whole New Testament, is again after darkness, light. And so the after darkness, light thing is a reflection of the goodness of God and an invitation to hope in the Lord. No matter how dark it gets, no matter how bad it gets, your story cannot change if you are in the light. The light has shined on you, and though you were once darkness, you are now light in the Lord, and so walk as children of light. There is light at the end of the tunnel. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But with him saying that is the warning. What if I don't follow Jesus? What if I don't follow him who is the light of the world? Well, then Jesus describes that as you are going to then perpetually walk in darkness. And the story for you is not after darkness, light, but after light, darkness, the light that you are experiencing now of, of, of this world and of this life and of this sun is going to eventually end in darkness for you and not light. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, that when he returns, it says the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, verse 13, Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, verse 30, And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in Jude 13, it speaks about how uh, uh, there is a gloom of utter darkness reserved for those who are false teachers and who are arrogant. You have a choice before you today. You can walk in the light. Or you can walk in darkness. Which will it be? And that choice is made depending on Jesus Christ himself, his person, his work, and his ministry. If you will believe in him and you will follow in him, then your story, if you will follow him, then your story is after darkness, light. But if you will not, then your story is after light, darkness. Jesus says of the righteous in Matthew 13, verse 41 to 43, that the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Darkness is not the end of the story for God's people. After darkness, light. Weeping, Psalm 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may tarry for the night, 
but joy comes in the morning. The morning is coming, church. Be encouraged. Be filled with hope. Be full of of awe in what God has done. Worship him and serve him and live as children of the light. Don't say that you're following him and you're walking in the light when you're not actually walking in the light. This so applies to our, our, our sanctification that if we were once darkness and are now light in the Lord, what do we have to do as children of light with any deeds of darkness? So if there's any deeds of darkness, brothers and sisters, that you are involved in in any way, repent. Repent. It does not belong in your life as a child of the light. And tell the Lord that, that you know that, and Lord, forgive me. He is abundant and he will pardon. But don't claim that you're walking in the light. Don't claim that you have fellowship with those who are walking in the light when you're really walking in darkness. Walk in the light and shine as a light. Do you realize your little orbit of light So let's just think about this. You behold the sun, and when you behold the face of the sun, you see the glory of the Father, and then the glory of the Father shining off the the face of the sun then, then causes you to radiate with light, and then you go, and people are bumping into you and running into you and hearing you speak and hearing you act and seeing you work, and in all those ways, they should be seeing the light of God's glory. Hearing you speak, hearing you share, share about Christ, hearing you preach about him who is the light of the world, shine as light in everywhere you go in this dark world. That's your mission. That's your story. So testify about it. Tell those who are, who are, who are dwelling in darkness, aren't you tired of dwelling in darkness? Don't you want to walk in the light? Come join me. I'm not perfect, but I know where perfect light exists, and I can show you the way to him. Father, we praise you. We pray that your church would be encouraged, that they'd be filled with hope, that they would just be in awe of who you are, and that it would cause them to praise you, Lord, to praise you for your power, to praise you, Lord, for your wisdom, to praise you for your goodness, all of which, Lord, we see so just gloriously demonstrated on this first day of creation. May we be different people because of that day, Lord. And may we be faithful to you and serve you with joy and gladness all the days that you give us. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen.